Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge. 2023 brought plenty of surprises in education. After all, this was the year that ChatGPT and other AI chatbots entered the landscape, but there were plenty of other big things going on. So for this, our first episode of the new year, we thought we'd look back at some key themes and trends of 2023. To do that, I checked in with my colleagues here in the newsroom at EdSurge, looking across all the beats we cover, from early learning to the college world. These reporters are located all across the country, and they've researched stories all over the map. They've talked with teachers and students of various types, and they have plenty of stories to share. Usually these reporters are the ones asking the questions, but today I'm turning the tables to ask them what's on their minds and what's on their radars for important themes to watch. I started by connecting with Emily Tate Sullivan, Ed Surge's senior reporter who leads our coverage of early childhood education. And I asked her what is the most memorable moment from her last year of reporting. I think if I have to boil it down to an interesting moment or like a singular experience, it would definitely be my reporting trip to Idaho. I had been trying to make that happen for more than a year from when I actually did it. And it was one of those things, this doesn't always happen in reporting, but it was something where when I first heard about this thing that was happening in this small town in Idaho, I was like, hold on, I'm going to stop you right there. I want to do this. I want to go there. Can you tell me everything about this place you just mentioned in passing? Um, and, and it took a lot of effort to um, actually execute that, but... Well, can I yeah. actually stop you for one second? And let's, this is a good point to remind people what it is that got you to have that spark moment of like, whoa, 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 wait, tell me more. So I was talking with the executive director of a nonprofit in Idaho that, you know, does like statewide early learning advocacy. And it was for a completely different story. It was supposed to be a quick call. But she was telling me sort of about the political context, the, the backdrop in Idaho and how the state legislature was so hostile toward early education and child care, anything that puts, you know, mothers back in the workforce. And this isn't like somebody with a political agenda talking. This is like real things that are said on the House floor in Idaho. And she was saying that there, you know, were efforts to push back against that, overcome it. There were sort of like these little glimmers of hope. And she just mentioned there's this town called American Falls in the agricultural part of the state, like in the southeast, where um, the whole community has rallied around this concept of retalk play to encourage families to reach their kids, talk with their kids, and play with their kids every single day. And now there are flags on flagpoles, and people wear shirts on Wednesdays, and there's decals in business windows. I mean, she said this in probably... 15 to 20 seconds. And I was like, wait, stop. What are you talking about? That's so cool. Especially, you know, as kind of like a, I don't, I don't know if this is dramatizing it, but sort of a story of resistance. Um, you know, they're doing it in a place where it's not easy. So, um, you know, I kind of filed that away 
and knew that the timing wasn't great last summer or fall. But then early this year, I called that same person back and kind of we off to the races, you know, trying to figure out uh, how to make it work. So I actually went there in September and, you know, (laughs) the other part of this is like when you're building something up in your mind so much, you kind of wonder, is it really what I think it's going to be? And I got really nervous because I was, you know, am I going all this way to the small town and people are going to be like, what? Oh yeah, we did that like one time. It wasn't like that at all. It was like magic. I, I, I have never been in a more quintessentially small town USA place. I mean, it was just like, it was just churches and schools and parks and like old fashioned pharmacy with an ice cream counter. Like everything was just kind of like, you couldn't have written it up better um, so you got in a time machine except for they're in our time. Yes. Time, and they're dealing with issues. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're doing it really like beautifully. Um, you know, they're, they've nearly, um, it is a small town. There's, I, I want to say like 5,000 people. Um, but they have nearly achieved universal preschool, which is a kind of a radical thing to do anywhere right now, but, um, certainly in, small conservative, um, Idaho. So yeah, it's a, it was a, it was a really exciting, uh, trip and very invigorating, you know, especially as a, as a story of something going really well in early education, uh, in America right now. So I encourage people to read it. Yeah. And so, and you were there for a couple days and a photographer tagged along. So this is one where we were able to bring, you know, bring this to life for readers um, in, in pictures too. They can see these t-shirts and the the school settings where people are living what you're describing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I actually spent a whole week in Idaho, but um, in this part of it, in this part of the state, I was there for like two and a half days. So it's cool. And then they're trying to scale the success that they've had to a neighboring county where there is like a you know quote unquote big city 70,000 people um so a lot more challenges there because with more people there's you know different types of barriers and different types of needs um but it's underway and it's going pretty well so you know that's always something we're looking for too is it's really great that something's working here under these conditions but can it work elsewhere and what would that take so the story also kind of gets at that too. And this story um, was, we were able to, to get to a lot of people through our partnership we did with the Associated Press. So it ran in a bunch of newspapers, right? Yeah, um, which is so exciting um, for me and also for everybody who was involved in the work to make, um, you know, this, this initiative happen in American Falls, Idaho. So I think in the end, the story was republished in over a hundred news outlets from, you know, local newspapers in Kansas and New York to the Washington Post and ABC News. So, um, that was really cool, I think, for everybody involved. And, um, yeah, that was through a partnership with the Associated Press, like you said. Obviously, this was a kind of solutions story where there's some, you know, kind of something that's actually, that's working amidst, as you say, like, against like rebelling against some challenges that that you were writing about and it hasn't all been that 
though on your beats in early learning, it sounds like, and as far as what the kind of like landscape is, could you just catch people up um, in kind of what the year brought us? That's right. um, In September, the sort of his in September, this historic amount of federal funding through the American Rescue Plan Act expired, and that was $24 billion in stabilization funds um, that the COVID-era funding that, I mean, not just, you know, saved the child care sector, but really kind of transformed it. Like, it allowed providers to upgrade their facilities, to pay their staff more. It made things possible that have never been possible in this industry this is really amazing. And then it just stopped. Um, and that has been a really big story of the year. And it will certainly continue to be into 2024. Um, many programs had kind of stockpiled some of those monthly funds they were getting, anticipating that it would be a pretty abrupt stop when it did end. And, um, you know, I think we'll really begin to see some of the effects of that in the coming months, once their, um, you know, rainy day piles dry up. Um, but I would say, you know, it is a really, I think it's no exaggeration to say that the field is in crisis. Um, but I've been reflecting on this year, you know, it's December. That's what you do in December. Um, and I have written a lot of, you know, intentionally, I've reported and written a lot of I guess you could call them solution stories in early childhood. And I was trying to figure out why I started doing that. Um, And I think it began in March or maybe leading up to March when I, I moderated a panel at South by Southwest EDU about, you know, it was something about building a sustainable early care and education system. And in the prep calls I had with panelists and then the actual conversation at the conference the whole premise was like yeah like we're not getting that you know hundreds of millions millions of dollars of funding actually I think it was hundreds of billions of dollars (laughs) built back better um of funding that is going to you know remake remake the sector um that's not happening so we can sulk about it or we can just charge ahead and try to make the most of what we do have in the system that does exist and, you know, elevate local and statewide efforts, uh, public-private partnerships. And so the whole hour was just panelists talking about things that they're seeing that are promising. And I was really encouraged by that. And I also liked the idea of not just kind of soaking in the like bad news of what's going on, which I feel like I've been doing for a few years now in the, in my coverage of early childhood. And so, yeah, I started looking for promising um, innovations, emerging solutions, things that could be scaled. So the story in Idaho is one of them, but you know, we looked at employer sponsored childcare. Um, I looked at, um, guaranteed cash payments. So sort of like universal basic income, but it's just, you know, I think this pilot was $500 a month to providers. Yeah. So basically like a whole new way, but without having the federal government be some major program that was, as you mentioned, proposed and never quite got into law. 
Um, so there's the other effort, other efforts, like either through maybe as an employee benefit or through, like you're saying, other other channels that have the that can start it on their own in a smaller way. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like no one is coming to save us. So what now? Like, are you just going to, like I said, are you just going to sulk or are you going to try and make the most of what is available to you? And I think there's a lot of really exciting stories of people and places and programs that are trying to make the most of what does exist. And I've just been trying to elevate those narratives alongside the ones that are sort of, you know, brutal, um, like the end of the funding. I don't want to ignore that or be naive that it's not happening, but I think it's important to, you know, have some encouraging stories alongside the ones that, um, are a little bit more bleak. Yeah. And I think, I I think your point about it's what's happening is, is really, is really interesting. And I think that's, that's where I feel like you're having done early learning coverage so closely now for a couple of years and really gotten, you know, up to speed on what the landscape's like. Um, it feels like you're so connected to hear like what are what are promising ideas that are being done um, since people aren't just sitting there, um, you know, waiting, waiting for some solution. Yeah. So stay tuned. There will probably be more of that in 2024. The majority of our stories these days at EdSurge are on K-12 education. And we have a few reporters digging into the latest innovations at the nation's schools. One of those is Daniel Mullenkamp, who's based in California. A major theme of his work in the past year has been looking at changes in math instruction. And he said his most memorable moment happened on a reporting trip to Harvard University, where he was shadowing a math professor who was there attending a training on how to rethink calculus instruction. Um, Sitting in the room where they're doing the teacher prep, so this is where they're giving lessons on teachers both on the practical applications of some of the modeling that they're using for it so that they understand how this works in the real world. Also um, also on how to actually use this, so how to put this in front of students in a way that's like really meaningful. One of the teachers pipes up and says, um, uh, you know, hey, what, what about students who don't have a prerequisite um, or they don't have like a lot of prerequisites? They're not really equipped for calculus very well. Um, and Alan Garfinkel, one of the men on whose work the uh, the course was based, uh, snaps back and he says, uh, "He says this our, our course requires no prerequisites. Period. <laughs> Close." Um, and the moment actually happened after that. So after in the hallway, I was kind of hanging out, and he comes up, he sidles up to uh, uh, Brendan Kelly, who's the director of the um, Harvard math program, and says, "I think we need better messaging." to like further explain um, that there are no prerequisites required for this course. Now, the reason that that stood out to me, I don't even remember if that made it in the piece, but it, it really kind of got me thinking about this education thing as like a genuine revolution. So uh, as something that has like a vanguard, that has something like messaging, that has to care about like the inner politic processes. It's just not the way that I'm used to thinking about a lot of these things. Um, and that was really bizarrely, memorable for me. I thought it was, it was kind of interesting. Right. The idea that people aren't understanding the mindset to have when going into this course or even to explain to students what they need to know. Well, that and the fact that the people, um, 
kind of pushing the change would have to think about it like a political uh, kind of messaging with leaders, with uh, brand messages and stuff, um, which is, I guess, partly why we ended up calling the second part of that series uh, the math revolution you haven't heard about because it was, it was like an actual kind of revolution. Yeah, and for people who haven't seen the story, um, we'll definitely link to it. Um, but for people who haven't seen the story, like what's backing up a minute, like what what is the the gist of that of that piece? It really speaks to this question of um, applications for math. So the we came I came across it sideways, kind of stumbled into it when I heard that UCLA had spent like a decade trying to reshape how they taught calculus to STEM majors. Um, essentially, they had run a survey and, in, in their words, found out that it was absolutely worthless the way they were teaching calculus before because it pushed out people from the STEM careers that they really wanted um, and, and needed. And so it was like really bad for their um, student kind of rates. Um, and so they, they had thought a lot about how to do it, and they spent 10 years kind of rigging up this new model, which um, really focuses on on application. So from, from their viewpoint, it was like the student motivation was the real problem. Uh, kids don't really like calculus. If you're like kind of a bio major, maybe you don't have the fondest memories of like hardcore math classes from uh, from high school. Um, and so... So if you if you come across like a really boring, really traditional calculus class, it could force you out of the major entirely, which is what they were worried about. Um, and so this this piece, the the Harvard reporting trip, was really the second in that series. The first one had looked at the attempts within UCLA to actually shape the curriculum, and this one is looking at their attempts to like broadcast this to other colleges and universities to try and get people to follow their model. So uh, their claims are basically that they can. Uh, up student motivation. They can do a lot of better student retention for life sciences courses by changing the calculus model. Um, and, and then the second piece, which the anecdote was about also that that it requires very, very little, um, if any, uh, prerequisite knowledge in math. So it kind of gets around that math anxiety. Yeah. And, and it seems like math is one of those you know, skills that builds on, on the past. And especially when you think of advanced math, it's kind of surprising to think of an advanced math course that doesn't require prerequisites. How does that work? Yeah, the the focus of the, uh, what they do is they they um, present uh, they present the problem first, essentially. So what they're doing is they're focused less on a procedural uh, understanding of math curriculum and more on um, on applications based. So in the classrooms that I sat in on that use that use this model with high school students, they um, essentially will present a problem like, well, how would you model um, uh, two examples that they really did use uh, COVID deaths over time um, and then uh, brushing your teeth. So two very different problems, uh, like um, but both kind of meant to ignite the curiosity of the student. So once you start with that problem, they let them kind of reason through it, critically think through it. And then they kind of introduce concepts like uh, Euler's method or, or something like that, um, which are like advanced calculus methods. Uh, but they kind of strip away some of the language um, that we are traditionally used in it. So they wouldn't call it like derivatives, for example. They would call them change equations. It's like a very practiced way of getting over that like student anxiety. So they're, they're saying, here's how to think. Not necessarily here's like the technical names for, for all of these things. Um, it seemed to work with the students that uh, that I talked with. Um, my own feeling was, where was this when I was a student? Maybe I'd be a little bit better at math. Um, but it, it uh, yeah, it's it's uh, interesting. Yeah, and how did you get? You know, it seems like a big, you know, theme of your year was was looking at at math. Um, how did you come to that? And and what was the the idea? 
Well, I'm not a math person, as you probably know by nature. Uh, I'm kind of an anti-math person by nature. Uh, I did okay in statistics, um, and I studied a little bit of like partial derivatives, but that's about as far as my my math got. Um, and I think partly it was because um, a there was like a really rigid uh, way of teaching math, um, but also just it was it was not very effective when I when I was in school. Um, so it was something I was kind of eager. So that that kind of I guess led me to some hesitation to go into it, but we we started seeing the topic come up again and again and again, uh, connected to like literacy uh, rates as like numeracy. This notion that like a lot of teachers are maybe not necessarily trained particularly well to to do math instruction, that math anxiety can really infect students um, from like their parents, from their teachers, uh, or, or as one of the we put it in one of the stories, uh, um, there's like a cultural uh, hesitation to teach math, right? Like everyone would say I read bedtime stories to my kid, but like who's doing bedtime equations, right? Nobody. <laughs> um, so there's like a, th- that kind of um, just struck me as like really interesting. And so we've been kind of probing a little bit deeper. We've been on the edges and now we're pushing towards the center, I think, um, a little bit more. Any other themes from your coverage for the year or or, or something, you know, sort of um, that you're left thinking about as, as, or that, sorry, or anything else you'd highlight from your coverage this year? Other themes, uh, chronic absence has been the other theme, uh, I guess, beat for the year for me. Um, This idea that coming back from the pandemic, um, not necessarily because of the pandemic, but just kind of coming back from that whole ordeal, students have been really, really reluctant and really hard to get into school for various reasons. We've covered that in a few ways. One was uh, school avoidance. Like we did a profile of of a student who coming back just couldn't force himself to go to um school like his i mean he was he was a pretty dire situation there but um that's one aspect and the other aspect is chronic absence in in particular for um students who are are experiencing homelessness um so students who chronic absence is students who've missed 10 percent of or more of the year and those rates are like really high uh particularly in like i live in california particularly in some places out here like san diego where we looked at um, there's just a lot of kids who are just not showing up to school um, for one reason or another. Yeah, and are there some you know s- solutions that seem to be bubbling up? Yeah, there there are a few interesting ones. My favorite was uh, Uber gift cards. Um, there was a district that told us that part of the reason students weren't showing up is they would get sick more often, and um, part of that was that the parents couldn't afford to go to doctor's appointments. And so they were giving Uber gift cards for going to the doctor to families. That was kind of unusual. I mean, a more usual, typical one would have been just the basics. Um, so so this this refrain, when I talk to people, they say it's, it's about kind of filling in the basics, right? How do you get to school? Do you have like access to clean clothes like laundry to like wash your clothes regularly for like homeless students in particular those are pretty big and then for just general chronic absentee rates the big thing we've heard is um is relationships it's about it's about how effectively the students are are kind of hooked into like personal relationships with people at the school that can kind of like draw them back in um and we see that both with the homeless and without the homeless there was one district we talked to in Yupavai, uh, it's in Arizona, central Arizona. And she was suggesting because her district is really small, they're able to give out cell phone numbers. So they can literally like text <laughs> students who are like chronically absent. They can track track them down if they have to, right? They, they uh, show up to their job if they work one and stuff like that. So those are kind of some of the more typical um, approaches that we've heard. 
just being connected to those students so they can um, help, you know, encourage them, understand what's going on and what's stopping them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big part. And then the other part would be um, just making sure they have the very basics that you need to actually show up to school in the first place. Yeah. Another one of our K-12 reporters reached an educational milestone of her own this year. That reporter is Nadia Temes Roblado. And while doing her reporting for us, she also finished a master's degree in data analytics. And she put those number crunching skills to work in a new series for EdSurge called Data Bytes. I had this idea to put my obsession to good use. And I... Um, I kind of already started doing it, but we kind of gave it a name. And Data Bytes is the series where the idea is that I'm taking small bite-sized um, amounts of data and highlighting it and kind of digging into the why of it. Um, so invariably, the stories become much more uh, fleshed out <laughs> because it's just so hard <laughs> to stop once I go down a rabbit hole sometimes. But it's a lot of fun where I take a little bit of data that might get overlooked and I create some visualizations um, to kind of transform it from just being numbers on a page to something that the reader can better understand, uh, maybe find interesting, maybe find some insight in, and then we explore the issue behind that data. One of her data stories dug into the issue of teacher shortages that have been hitting schools across the nation since the COVID-19 pandemic. And when she looked at it, it was more complicated than many people might think. You have this maybe idea of what's already going on, but then you see, well, this problem isn't everywhere. Not every state is having a teacher shortage. And so, of course, the question there is, why? What's, uh, what's going on here? And so there's this saying that I heard a long time ago, which is, what do the data say? Not kind of what your assumptions are, but what do the data say? Listen to the data, follow the data. And so um, the expert that I spoke to in that story who had been studying teacher shortages, one of the interesting things that he says in that article is that... um, because there are so many schools or so many school districts, you cannot think about the teacher job market as one national job market. There's really 50 job markets and they all have their own different um, things that are impacting them. So um, a district that's struggling in one state has, I don't know, there's a bunch of different factors involved there. And then their neighboring state, they might just they might be doing just fine. Um, And so then when I called up some of the states that were doing um, the worst, according to the data, um, hearing kind of their side of the story. You mean the ones with uh, a real shortage going on in the state? Hearing their side of the story was interesting as well. I'm looking at your chart. I'm looking at your chart, and it says basically the number of teacher vacancies per 10,000 the the Mississippi line is is long. Like there's a lot there with with vacancies, and then but Missouri was like almost didn't show up on your chart. Yes, and so you found big disparities across states when it came to 
what was right. really going on. So you can't really say a national teacher shortage because there's so much variation between states that that's just really not accurate. Because um, every state has a ton of different factors within it that are affecting their ability to attract teachers. Um, just like within each state, you know, the factors that are impacting in a state like Texas, where I live, the factors that are impacting a very small rural school district versus a huge urban school district might be a little different. Because, you know, every, each of us only live in one state <laughs> and and teachers, they, teachers usually only work in one state. So it really, to me, it helped as somebody trying to watch this issue nationally it's like oh because i'm sure there were people reading about these these big news stories about the teacher shortage early on this year and it was like they might be in a place where that wasn't happening at all (laughs) it was probably kind of right and then you have other areas where uh superintendents are or principals are calling up teachers in other districts trying to steal them away so yeah you can't say it's not a one-size-fits-all designation when you're talking about teacher shortages. It's, the states are just so different. I love, I love this mantra, what does the data say? <laughs> yes. Um, you have to interview the data, talk to the data, take the data out for dinner, buy it some flowers. You know. How is the data as company? <laughs> I love it. Um, I love working with data. It's like a big puzzle um, that you have to sort out and organize and kind of make um, make sense out of the chaos, um, especially when you're dealing with like federal data that maybe it comes to you nice and organized or maybe it's just not. Um, but there's something very like there's something very organized, something very, um, very zen about the process of having to uh, clean and organize something. Thinking, I guess I can kind of think about it as like cleaning out your closet, but for journalism, um, just that very satisfying <laughs> process. Maybe you are one of the few people who, when you were told to clean your room, didn't mind that much. You're making me think yes uh that was one i made my bed every morning so this tracks i can see the connections Uh, now our senior reporter emily tate sullivan who we heard from earlier she also covers k-12 issues for ed surge so i asked her to share highlights of her coverage of those issues i'd say like my two favorite things that i reported on this year um i'll start with the one I knew I was going to write about coming into 2023 was um, the impact of housing on um, America's schools. This is the the high cost of housing and how it might affect teachers, which are not the highest paid. Right. So I've been reporting on the teaching profession and the impacts of low teacher compensation for a couple of years. And a lot of times in those conversations, it would just come up that, you know, teachers really wanted to be able to afford their own house and they couldn't on their salaries or they were 
living with roommates well into middle age and they didn't want to do that anymore or they could make enough money to have those things if they just left the profession. Um, and at some point, I think between that, hearing that in interviews, and then reading a lot of different local news stories here and there um, about either sort of like desperate situations teachers were in, like I live in Colorado, and one of the local news outlets had a story about a teacher who lives out of her van because she can't afford, you know, real accommodations uh, in her county. But also there was a district in Arizona that was building tiny homes for its teaching staff. There was a district in Texas that bought a a motel to rent out the rooms to its teachers. Um, And I hadn't seen a national story about this, so I was really interested in being the one to do it. Um, So I went on reporting trips to Austin, Texas, and um, Eagle County, Colorado, which is where the Vail Ski Resort is. It's a very expensive resort area. And met... Yeah, this is like um, a couple hundred dollars a day lift ticket kind of place. Like, yeah. Yeah, or like uh, median home prices of over a million dollars, where I think that the average median home price in the U.S. is maybe more like four or five hundred thousand. So it's expensive. Um, And both of those districts have housing projects underway. So the districts are developing housing on land that they own for staff. Um, Some of them are doing apartments for rent. Some of them are working with Habitat for Humanity to build homes. So I kind of wanted to do this like big story that looks at the problem of housing how it intersects with schools and school staff, what that means for students and families, um, and also some efforts underway to kind of chip away at the problem. And it ended up being more of this feature story about a teacher named Carrie Rogers, who, when I met her, had applied for one of the deeply discounted um, homes the district was building that she would have gotten a chance to buy um and it kind of like follows her journey from applying for that and whether she gets it and what she does about it and um yeah it was it's really interesting uh to report that story and just think about the teaching profession through the lens of you know another experience that everybody has which is where you live and and how you live in all these examples, you're you're like getting to know these these people and bringing to life their stories as a way to, because I know that um, there are plenty of people in our audience that are educators and I'm sure they know firsthand all these issues. But um, but I feel like for both those in the profession and not, it's it is helpful to like get to know some some characters um, in in these stories. Yeah, yeah, with Carrie. Um... You know, I went to, I went inside her classroom, a special education classroom in an elementary school. And then she took me to the restaurant where she works on weekends and evenings as a server. And then she let me inside her home. I met her cat, sat on her couch. She told me about, 
you know, some of the sacrifices she's made to continue living in such an expensive town on, you know, a pretty modest salary. So it's a, I think as a result of that kind of access, it's a pretty intimate portrait of her life and her circumstances, which I hope is kind of a way in for readers to, you know, feel something about this person they're meeting and then understand and empathize with like why it's so hard for her and, and sort of the the difficult decision that she ultimately has to make. Yeah, they might be seeing the stats, which are also in your story and the research behind like the, the challenges and the problem, the crisis in all these different areas you've talked about, like in this case, housing. But then, you know, it's easy to just like eyes glaze over some of these stats. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully through her, you can humanize those stats. Exactly. And as readers of EdSurge know, we cover higher education as well. This makes EdSurge pretty unique among education publications, which usually either cover K-12 only or just the college world. So I connected with one of the reporters covering higher ed for us, Rebecca Koenig, who's based in Washington, D.C., Becky is also one of the lead editors here. You might hear her name in the credits on this podcast every week. I started by asking her what was her most memorable reporting moment of the year. I did a story earlier this year about um, how Arizona State University created online um, rigorous science bachelor's degree programs. Um, and it's it's something that had not really been done widely before because... There's a big challenge here, which is getting people to fulfill their lab requirements in um, courses like biochemistry or biology and chemistry. Um, but at ASU, they wanted to break through that barrier and offer these really in-demand um, programs to students who are primarily going to study online. And the way they pulled it off um, is by bringing online students to campus for these science summer labs. Um, and in, in and of itself, it was pretty experimental and it sounds like it worked really well and the program is off and running. And so that was that was a story that I enjoyed doing this year and it was a little surprising. Sure. And yeah, it was. So these are labs that you would think, you know, would need to be in person. Yes. And, and there are alternatives. You know, you can send lab kits to students at their homes you can create labs that um, draw on common things like in your kitchen, for example, you know, sort of the baking soda vinegar <laughs> idea. Um, but as one professor told me, you know, you, you can't really mail hazardous chemicals to students' homes. That sort of thing has to take place in a, in a formal lab. So that was sort of what they were trying to solve for. Um, and it sounds like they they did pretty well at figuring it out. So you were, you were able to like get a sense of what this looked like as they kind of did this alternative. Yes. Um, and one thing that was super cool was to talk to a couple of the students who participate and to get a sense of why, why do they study online? Why do they want to take really intense science courses online? Because sometimes I think we get the impression that people study online to just do it, to just do higher education as quickly as possible or just to get, you know, any bachelor's degree. Um, but these are students who, who really want to take intense science courses and, and some of them want to go on 
to be research scientists or to you know go to medical school um so it was very interesting to hear like both the passion that they have and also why it's important that they be able to study online as opposed to do the more traditional thing of going in person to a campus. No, I think that's true. And so you're actually able to sort of get past this like kind of broad view that kind of gets into like white papers about adult students or people who study online by actually like going in and talking to some of the students in this program. Yeah, and one of them... um, had, you know, for example, had was in the Marine Corps um, for a long time and, ha- you know, had a family, had children and had tried college sort of the traditional way the first time around and it hadn't worked out for her. But she had this dream of, um, you know, studying science. And when she found out that she could do it online primarily while um, more, you know, maintaining her military connections, you know, raising her kids, um, living across the country from ASU. She she got really excited about that um, and was also excited for the opportunity to come to campus to do these labs, meet some classmates, meet her professors. Um, so just in talking to her, you get a sense of why flexibility was really important to her and also why she didn't want just any old online program. You know, she wanted one from from a real institution that would that would give her credibility when she applied to graduate school. I'm curious, like, what are some other kind of themes that you saw this year, um, whether you directly reported on them or not, that, that seemed to be kind of on your radar for innovation in higher ed? Well, a theme that I, um, that definitely stood out to me, and I actually want to ask you about it too, is this, this idea that students are having a hard time being really present in the classroom and, and really connecting with other students, focusing in class, putting their phones away, staying off TikTok, um, feeling, feeling that they belong on campus. Like just a theme that seemed to pop up over and over again this year in my reporting and I think also in yours, Jeff, is this concern that students don't know how to engage, um, you know, with, with other people around them and with the material. Um, and I wonder if I could throw it to you to hear what you, what you encountered on that topic. No, no, thanks for, I mean, honestly, we're both covering higher ed here and it is absolutely something I heard over and over again. I mean, even the podcast that we just ran a couple weeks ago, looking at, um, an expert on kind of social media and, and technology's impact on, on well-being of students, she was saying that she's going to campuses and seeing, you know, students, you know, she's remembering back to when she was in college about how she describes like closing down the dining hall because they were just so excited to like sit and talk with their friends. And I feel like that I have memories of, of, of that, you know, where you just, you don't even know, you know, like different people are kind of coming in and out. You're like having these great conversations. And now, you know, she said she's walking into the kind of food court-ish kind of dining hall and people are on their phones by themselves at tables with their takeout or whatever, or with their meals. And I've definitely seen that myself too. And it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of life has changed in so many ways since, um, back when I was in college, but it's one that, um, it gets at this idea of what is campus life when there aren't these kind of stereotypical kind of moments um, of students, they're all thrown together and they're on this campus together 
but are they having as many interactions? Um, I mean, of course, it is complicated. I mean, there are plenty of student groups, um, plenty of, and some people tell me how they're able to do projects with students at other schools thanks to shared Google Docs and Zoom. And like, I think students are excited to do the kind of like actual real world work that like you and I do, Becky, where we are in different cities on Zoom and Google Docs making things. And so I do get it that it's not all like back in my day, but it does feel like something is lost too if if students aren't feeling connected to the place that they've they're paying all this money to be in and they're like spending right. this time. And I think it it does seem to make the value proposition of an in-person campus-based education a little shakier because if you are paying to be on campus and one of the appeals of campus life is sort of like the engagement with your peers and your professors, but you're not doing it. Um, I could understand why you might not get what all the fuss is about. And maybe you are less likely to, you know, really value what you or your family um, or, or your loans are paying for there. So it's, the engagement I think our reporting has shown matters a lot for learning. You know, are you actually taking up this material? It matters for your sense of belonging. Do you, do you feel, um, you know, like you personally have a connection with other people around you on this campus? And then I think it's a well-being yes, issue. Yes. And then I think it matters for colleges to be able to keep, you know, for lack of a better phrase, selling the education that they're trying to sell. So I, I think it's a big concern all around. Right. And back to the classroom, we have like one of the, you know, most surprising stories I looked at this year is like this body um, doubling, which is a, a term that isn't just in technology, apparently, but um, basically students going to TikTok and live YouTube streams to study live while they're in their own room all by themselves and just turning on, like setting up their, propping up their phone on their laptop is the way people described it to me and like using their phone to like live stream on TikTok, say, and just sitting there doing their studying. And you can watch this. Like there's our article points to, <laughs> if, if you don't believe this, you can watch it yourself because people have put up hours and sometimes they like time lapse it. And there it is like studying as a way of, you know, they're saying they're doing it to feel accountable, held accountable when they're sort of saying, I'm going to be online for this hour or two hours and people can kind of check them, so to speak, or like they know people could be watching or some do. They sometimes stop and chat like in text with these folks that are watching them. So it feels a little communal to take a study break. And, you know, they're the other thing that really surprised me was that they were saying they were so addicted to TikTok on their phone that if they didn't, that this made them not be able to use their phone because you couldn't pick up the phone to like scroll through it because it is the camera that's filming them. And so if they took the phone and scrolled TikTok, they would be outing themselves as doing that because it would turn off the feed. That's really funny. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work and a, and a lot of sort of exposure just to hold yourself accountable. It's pretty interesting. It is. And, and that's where, again, like, I'm like, isn't there a coffee shop you could go to? And I think some of these habits started during COVID when there, there literally wasn't a coffee shop to go to. I mean, there wasn't safe. Yes. 
health wise. So it it you can see how these things started, mm-hmm. but they haven't. You know, if if anything, that you know they're sticking around mm-hmm. and maybe even growing um, in some ways. Yeah, Jeff, are there other um, themes that you've seen this year that you're you know excited to dig into for 2024? Well, you may not be surprised to know that I'm going to still look at AI in education. I mean, I think the it it's definitely something we've covered as uh, regular readers and listeners to this podcast know. Um, but it feels like you know this the, the these kind of large language models and the changes in AI since this year since ChatGPT came out. Um, you know, they've certainly it's it's people are talking about it. People are. You know, we're hearing a lot of concern by educators um, about what it means for academic integrity is obviously the first thing we usually hear. Um, and we've written a lot about that. But there's also, you know, this other thing, other side of the coin is like, could it be used as a tool, AI, to help in maybe administrative tasks or grading that people kind of love to hate or don't love so much uh, and maybe want to try to get shortcuts on? But I feel like we kind of, people have sort of said those kind of first level things. And I'm really interested in how um, how things play out as there's been this rush of companies in the technology world trying to put out products and services and, you know, not just companies, but nonprofits like Khan Academy with, you know, tutoring kind of chatbots as instructors and professors try them. I think it's going to, there's going to be all kinds of issues that people haven't even thought of yet besides just cheating. Um, and it is, there is the question of what parts of not just the job of professor could be replaced by AI, but you know, the jobs that are supposedly colleges are preparing people for, like what are, you know, these, the, it feels like there has been a previous wave of technology that disrupted kind of blue collar work primarily or service service work of checkout, you know, checkout clerks being replaced by the self checkout machine. Um, this is coming to what you need a college degree for. It's already here. If it's coming to fields like, you know, marketing and law and, you know, all kinds of project management type of white collar jobs that now, you know, what does it mean to prepare students for those jobs if you're a college and then that preparation does it what what is the human element to it <laughs> yeah what what does it do and you wonder because the technology is new to everybody at the same time more or less it doesn't seem like your typical college professor knows at this moment how to prep students to use AI um, for, you know, for these jobs that maybe are going to incorporate it. So I guess one question I have is, even as professors are worried about cheating with AI, you know, is someone thinking about how to train faculty to train students to incorporate AI responsibly um, so that you know, when folks graduate, they'll have some experience with it. It's, it's, it's sort of a, um, 
if it really is poised to change so much knowledge work, someone's got to get the <laughs> instructors prepared so that they can instruct the students. Um, I know it's it's interesting because it's almost a case, you know, and I know people are making this case that, you know, maybe it could be a good reason to say there's need for a grounding in the history, philosophy, kind of humanities um, fields and, you know, not pretend, even if you're not going to go into being a scholar in history or philosophy, um, since there's not a ton of those jobs, but, you know, the idea that to, to get the well-rounded education that people talk about with, with higher ed, but it may be more important than ever um, because those are the kind of the ethics and the um, the kind of history of not just technology, but of social movements and wor- workplace issues. I mean, just because this tech is new, it seems to be setting off a pattern of disruption that has has come before with different um, you know, the people love to talk about how it's like when the printing press came, none of us were around then obviously, but it's like, there's plenty of people that wrote about that period of, of human history and how it went down. And it feels like a good time to learn from that. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Definitely. I feel like it's interesting that, you know, technology is a piece of, of all of this, like the, but back to the, back to the student engagement issue, I do feel like there's this bigger question about, you know, what is college for? This podcast series we just started last month on, you know, skeptic skepticism of higher ed, it feels like it's it's really about a, a fight over what higher ed should be. And I feel like that's all wrapped up in all the things we've been talking about when, with our coverage of, you know, whether it's you know, how to make a a science lab work for busy students. And so that, you know, who gets to be a scientist really is the question. Or, you know, in this modern era, or like, what are, you know, um, how, what does it mean to like prepare someone to be a citizen and worker when nobody even knows, like when those, those spaces seem so disrupted? There was... Uh, an opinion piece in the Washington Post very recently um, digging into this question a bit, especially about ChatGPT. And I think one of the conclusions drawn by the end was that humans still respond to other humans and things created by other humans. And so perhaps in an era of ubiquitous technology, the more deeply human something is, the more it will have value, the more people will respond to it. Um, and if that's the case, I think it does make the argument that um, human engagement, human creativity, the humanities broadly will continue to be important and maybe they'll have a new salience in a world where everything else is made by bots. So I think that that's the kind of argument that you know, liberal arts professors <laughs> would like to hear and would be happy to to run with. Um, but I <laughs> totally. But I guess we don't know for sure. It was clear from checking in with my colleagues here at EdSurge that there's plenty of ongoing issues here to follow, and we look forward to continuing to dig into all these aspects of education innovation over the year to come. We hope you'll stay with us on this journey. 
Alrighty, now time for the credits. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. We're here every week, and we hope you'll follow us on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please support us by leaving a rating or a review or telling a friend about the Ed Surge Podcast. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me at jeffyoung.net. The music was by Komaku and editing by Rebecca Koenig. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year.